This episode is sponsored by Vulture, high-performance cloud compute, bare metal, and storage in 25 locations all over the world. Sign up and get $200 free credit to use in 30 days at getvultr.com slash ldt. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Martin. I'm Kyle. I'm Hayden. Welcome back, Martin and Kyle. And uh, hello, Hayden, for the first time on this show. People may know you as the WSL guy. They may. I'm also an engineering manager at SUSE, where I do various things on Rancher. But prior to that, I worked on Ubuntu on WSL and founded Penguin Linux, the bespoke distro for WSL. So yeah, it's a fair enough reputation. I have your book. You literally wrote the book on WSL. Nice. You should buy the book. It's a good book. You should get more copies. Before we get started, just a thank you to everyone who sent in feedback about the last episode. We will definitely take that into account when we do part two. We're not going to do part two today, though. Instead, Martin's got a question for us. And that question ties in somewhat to an old Linux After Dark episode where we talked about what is desktop Linux. But Martin wants to ask, what is a Linux distribution? Now, I didn't check Webster's, but uh, Wikipedia defines a Linux distribution as an operating system made from a software collection that includes the Linux kernel and often a package management system. So there we go. That's the end of the episode then, Martin. (laughs) I have a different definition to Wikipedia. It has to be distributable in the first case. So those like in-house Microsoft distributions don't count. So it has to be publicly accessible. And once you've installed said Linux distribution, it should be possible to download the source code to the latest version of the Linux kernel, compile that kernel, and then boot off it. So this is my definition, which in some cases I think is probably an echo back to the early 1990s when I first started using Linux, because that was the whole point. Just a clarifying question, Martin. You say you should be able to download the latest Linux kernel and and boot off of it. Are you saying latest upstream or latest from the vendor? The source code from kernel.org, and then that source version of be it a tarball or a git clone you should be able to compile that source code for the linux kernel and then boot off that kernel what about drivers that haven't been upstreamed that is a bit of nuance so a lot of that stuff lives in linux firmware i didn't want to get into that i did have some other qualifying pieces which is like the whole distribution should have the source code available for example but i suppose the reason for me defining as a linux distribution is linux is the key word here so you know it's the fact that the kernel is a central part of it and in the good old bad old days it was the very fact that it was a Linux distribution that was the key, the key point. So the ability to download and update the kernel freely was kind of important. So by my definition of a Linux distribution, I'm going to rule out things like Android and Chrome OS as not Linux distributions. And WSL. Yeah, certainly. I think WSL one is true of that and we'll we'll ask Hayden for comment and I would say every container that runs the internet also not a Linux distribution I would take issue with some of this 
First of all, I think at its core, assuming all distros have roughly the same software available, what makes a distribution a distribution is a package repository, a packaging tool, and some sort of release process. That is what distinguishes a distro. And whether you're using apt or RPM or zipper, like that's fundamentally you're distributing packages for use and they're distributed as packages. Now at a higher level, I think there's other caveats, but I think it comes down to the tool. Okay. So I think it's important that I've noticed that you've dropped the word Linux from your description there. You've, you've retained the word distro and distribution and you've replaced Linux with package packages and software. So at this point, it's a software distribution rather than a Linux distribution. Well, Linux is the kernel, you know, and it's the kernel on WSL2. So while WSL1 was that binary translation layer and was not powered by a true Linux kernel. And probably you're right, is just a platform to run software. WSL2 is powered by a kernel and it fits your definition where you can download the latest upstream kernel, build it, install it, and run your distributions with that latest kernel. So it meets your definition on WSL2, but you can go higher level with it too in terms of what a distribution is. Obviously, there's a vision or a mission. So for Penguin, we had a bespoke Debian-based derivative for WSL that the WSL community contributed to, that we maintained for the WSL community with all the optimizations that WSL users would want. So you have the mission, you have the community around the distribution, you have customers who pay for the distribution. And I would even include derivatives in terms of what a distribution is because upstream contributions and, and what's encompassed there. So, but yeah, to me at the lowest level, it comes down to packaging. I suppose the point that I'm raising this particular question is I and others in the short run of this podcast so far, have alluded to an immutable future. So I'm going to throw Ubuntu Core under the bus of not a Linux distribution. You could download the upstream and create a kernel snap from it, right? But I'm glossing over some of the (laughs) obtuseness. And I, I suppose where I'm headed with this is if this is the future, if this is where Linux is going, where the kernel is abstracted and becomes an implementation detail, is Linux distributions of the future what we actually want at all? See, now you're talking about what a distribution is becoming. And to me, what it's becoming is initially a, a hypervisor some sort of you know, resource manager, a base image of some sort, a GUI for desktop users, a set of runtime images, and then containerized apps. See, to me, I see actually desktop Linux with things like Silverblue and micro OS from OpenSUSE aligning closer with what actually WSL2 provides, which is a hypervisor a base image, which Windows contains, a a base system image, a GUI, which is the Windows interface, 
and then a set of runtimes, whether it's .NET or it's your WSL2 environment. And then within that, you have your applications. And of course, on your Linux desktop, you're booting not Hyper-V, but KVM. And you're booting these immutable images. And then you're booting Snaps, Flatpaks, OS tree, RPM, you know, other technologies with runtime images. And the actual models are converging very quickly. So yes, in our professional lives, we are all comfortable with creating containers, which are just pulling on the user space of whichever distribution we happen to want to build our application on. But the kernel is so far abstracted from that process that it's you could argue it's no longer Linux because you could say it's either, um, you know, Alpine and their implementation of user space or Debian and Ubuntu and their implementation of user space or RHEL and SUSE and their implementation. And frankly, we're so far removed from the kernel now. When we deploy in the cloud, the kernel is controlled by the provider, the vendor, not the distribution at all. And I think that if we follow those cloud principles, as Hayden was just saying, this is what our desktops are going to become, where the, the kernel is so far abstracted from our touching point, it's kind of irrelevant. Yep. On WSL2, you get your Linux kernel from the Microsoft Store. Right. And it's just automatically updated in the background. But you can switch that out for a custom kernel then. Absolutely. Yeah. You can set a config file and build a custom kernel and... I do it myself to get optimizations to run nested virtualization and add support for other file systems that don't come in the default kernel. Right. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash L-D-T to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end-users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash L-D-T. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash L-D-T. So, if containerization is the future, what does our distro look like in the future? Do we just become an abstracted kernel and a hypervisor layer and then a bunch of user space implemented on top? And if so, what do you call that? Is that just an operating system at that point and not a distribution? It could just be a platform because you could have at that fundamental layer, it's a bit like the PlayStation. It's the kernel and enough to bring the system up and then it's an abstraction layer and everything that sits above it i know the free bsd people love love to lord that you know the playstation is based on bsd well 
I'll let you into a little secret. One of my best friends is the architect behind the PlayStation operating system, and BSD plays such a minuscule role in the operating system. It's literally the kernel that brings up an abstraction layer, and then it's an SDK that sits on top of that. And the actual interaction between the PlayStation and the kernel is very thin and you know completely abstracted away from game developers and i wonder if i'm being my own devil's advocate here because i've talked about this containerization future for linux desktop i'm actually asking the question is this what we want is this the direction of travel we want to be moving in as enthusiasts that have enjoyed linux for so long i think it requires such a common underlying layer We don't, as a community, have a great history with agreeing, (laughs) to say it politely. So I'm wondering who would come up with this SDK in a way that would make people happy. I agree, because you were talking about the benefit of having opinionated people making opinionated software last time we spoke. And, you know, to Hayden, I would say, isn't it Microsoft? Because in the kernel for WSL2, the one kernel you choose is the one kernel that gets used by the whole WSL platform. So Microsoft have their preference, it's their kernel, but you don't pick and choose kernels to run different WSL software platforms. There's one kernel for all of them. Right. Multiple distributions all use the same kernel. Yeah. And so they are distributions on WSL too. They're software distributions though, because there's no Linux kernel inside them. And, you know, at this point, it's like a point of preference. Hayden was talking about package managers. Well, which package manager and platform ecosystem are you most comfortable with? You know, maybe it's APKs and Alpine. Maybe it's RPMs and Red Hat and SUSE. Maybe it's apt with Debian and Ubuntu. But suddenly the kernel is the least relevant piece in your decision-making process. At that point, the Linux kernel is the abstraction layer on top of the NT kernel, at least in WSL. Right. But as you said, Kyle, we're not going to agree on this. I mean, you only have to look at something like SystemD. There's tons of distributions, albeit minority ones, that have decided to turn their back on SystemD and do it the old-fashioned way with one of the other init systems. And surely we're not going to get to a point where every Linux-based operating system is this abstracted version of the future that you've talked about, Martin. People will keep making these old-school, you know, GNU-slash-Linux distros, but you're trying to say that very few people will use them then. Not necessarily. I, I'm I'm more concerned that such a thing would be designed by committee, mm. and then we'd end up in a really sticky place. Wouldn't it just be designed by Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have DevOn and you have the non-systemd distributions, but even within distributions that have adopted systemd, not all systemd distributions have adopted all of systemd because it has many different components and not all of them have adopted all of those various subcomponents. There was an attempt at standardizing a Linux base called LSB, Linux Standard Base, similar to the POSIX standards, you know, of antecedent Unix. And I don't think anyone adheres to those at all anymore in any way. Well, yeah, and you get things like systemd, homd, which still haven't really appeared in mainstream distributions. And I think that when that's ready, you're going to get a lot of pushback from a lot of people, especially system administrators who just don't want to do it that way. 
with you know just one image for your entire home directory. There's still some complicated problems that need solving with HomeD. As it happens, I think let's imagine a world where all of those difficulties are overcome. I think it's actually quite a compelling capability. Sorry, Linux enthusiasts, I quite like the idea. But then again, I like <laughs> Pulse Audio, Pipewire, and SystemD. <laughs> yeah, with HomeD, you're containerizing your home directory, just like you'd be containerizing your applications and making them portable. Another abstraction layer. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, if this is the direction of travel, at that point, if the kernel has become an implementation detail, could we not just run our preferred platform user space software distribution on top of Fuchsia, for example? Does it actually matter what the underlying kernel is? Well, no. And I've been arguing this for a long time, that that is probably the end game of Fuchsia, that because everything will be containerized, it just won't matter. You're just interfacing with applications at that point. Whether those are applications on the desktop or on the server, you know, whether that is your, your web server and all the rest of it, or whether it is a browser on the desktop, it doesn't really matter. And most people don't really care about the things below the level of applications, really. And um, I mean, something that is uh, the elephant in this room is ARM, because what you're talking about is a future that almost feels necessary when we're all using ARM, because you, you can't just have a generic x86 kernel that will just boot on virtually any machine, any server, any laptop, any desktop. You need a bespoke image. There are certainly moves afoot to make that a little bit more generic and a little bit less specialized for every board. But we're still not there yet. And so if you just build things on top of an abstraction layer and just get used to that idea, then you just sort of accept the abstraction layer per board and don't worry about it almost. To take your example and run with it a little bit, I don't think any of those would actually fit as a Linux distribution, according to Martin's definition, all of these things have little custom bits of hardware that either have drivers that barely work or at least haven't been upstreamed or, or proprietary or whatever, right? Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't fit my definition as in you need to be able to build the kernel boot off the kernel. But to your point, Kyle, there are examples of people that are working with projects that have those limitations that do publish enough open source in order for those people to build and maintain over many years operating systems that they care about. So there are several organizations who provide builds of Chrome OS, for example. Now, some of that involves shoehorning in binary-only components into the build process for things like, you know, DRM controlled media and for hardware enablement and things like that. But they are able to bring up enough of the platform through open source software. There's obviously a multitude of Android derived projects where there's enough open source enablement out there that you can bring up enough of the platform. And again, probably have to inject a boatload of, you know, binaries into the resulting image in order to complete that bring up. But actually that process is not so different from modern day Linux. 
go and look at what the largest software package on your Linux distribution is, I can absolutely guarantee it's Linux firmware, which will be hundreds of megabytes and is the thing that makes your Wi-Fi work, your networking work, your GPUs work, microcode for your processors. You know, without that one package, your computer probably doesn't do a whole lot. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Vulture. Go to getvulture.com slash LDT to sign up and get $200 free credit to use in 30 days. Vulture offers high-performance cloud compute, bare metal, and storage in 25 locations all over the world. You can pick from 12 operating systems, including Windows, or you can bring your own ISO. Vulture's Marketplace offers one-click installation of more than 50 applications and operating systems, including Minecraft and other game servers, VoIP and VPN platforms, content management systems like WordPress, and cPanel. Also, check out their optimized plans, CPU, memory, and storage optimized instances featuring the latest AMD Epic chips. So go to getvulture.com slash LDT to get your $200 credit and support the show. That's G-E-T-V-U-L-T-R dot com slash L-D-T. Bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at linuxdowntime.com slash support. And for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Late Night Linux. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. I do think that fundamentally the shift towards immutable base images and containerized applications and abstraction is going to improve the user experience. And I think there's evidence to support that. And this is something that you've worked with, Hayden. And I think that this is common between Windows and Mac OS now, that large parts of the user-facing experience are all contained in different layers of hypervisor. And that's completely abstracted away from the end user. Absolutely. Am I right in thinking, Kyle, that you're not as convinced as Hayden and Martin about this immutable future? I think it shuffles a lot of problems around that are are being ignored. Security is a big concern of mine. And so when you start talking about abstracting the kernel, you know, who who maintains that, right? Cloud providers don't really have a great reputation in terms of, I mean, you can just look at um, cloud providers that promise to maintain WordPress. Works out great, right? I mean, if something works, someone has to have a reason to keep it up to date. If that's not the distribution, or the container maintainer or whatever, right? Things work. Why update? I think it really makes for a messy security story that I don't think anyone's really figured out to my satisfaction. Kubernetes is a great example of this where, okay, now I know that I can use the Nginx container for my ingress controller, but that's version X, right? How do I know that that actually has the most recent security patches for its underlying Debian or what? I mean, like this just sort of, when you abstract things like this, you also abstract all the problems. And now I don't know how to solve them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so no, I'm not, I'm not quite as sold on the whole container. Str- I think it obviously solves a lot of problems. I don't, don't get me wrong there. But I think it invents a lot too. Well, Martin, something we talked about off air was um, my experiences of macOS. And macOS is now this immutable file system and updates come seemingly every month or more. Whereas I look at my Ubuntu-based distribution that I'm running now, and I get updates 
virtually every day, sometimes a couple of times a day with little bug fixes here, little security updates there, sometimes major ones. But certainly with macOS, it feels like they, they have to justify this entire big update that takes ages. You have to reboot and wait for it. And you said to me that it's not necessarily like that with Immutable Linux, like with the likes of uh, Fedora Silverblue then. It is possible to do atomic updates with a number of the immutable solutions, including, you know, Snaps and Ubuntu Core as well. And I think this is an area where Kyle has more experience than myself in terms of, you know, the mechanisms at play there and how that works. I am afraid I don't know how macOS does this. This is not, that's not my area of expertise at all. As far as Snaps though, first of all, the distribution, we'll, we'll call that, right? That, that make, let's just talk about Ubuntu core because everything is snaps all the way down there, right? Mm. It's split into a number of pieces. The kernel is a snap. The root FS, the execution environment of individual application snaps is a snap called the, the core snap or they call it base now. I can't remember. And then you've got the individual application snaps as well. And each of these update on their own. And so when you're updating an application, you don't have to update all the rootfs that's underlying it, right? That's updated separately. And then in addition to that, when the snaps are updated, they do it in a, in a binary delta so that what you're actually downloading is, is much smaller than the image itself. It just downloads the difference between what you already have. Now on disk, it ends up taking the same because that delta is applied, right? But mm. as far as downloading that type of thing, it, it's a lot better. But then in terms of snaps, I mean, it just bind mounts them into place. There's no, and then run some stuff out of them. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know the details behind how Mac does its thing or why it takes so long. Yeah. I think they have non delta updates and they're, you know, larger images. But I think Joe makes a good point that they don't have the same turnaround time in terms of their commitment to security this was some analysis that i did for my day job recently which is why is it that um you were talking about nginx containers earlier mm -hmm. kyle why is it that this nginx container that's published on docker hub by the nginx project has so many vulnerabilities inside it even though it's up to date and it's the latest version. Whereas if I go and grab an Ubuntu base image and install Nginx inside it, the vulnerability count is way, way lower. And this comes back to your point about, well, who's the distribution vendor and what is their commitment to their customers and users regarding the security profile? Debian is obviously a community project and therefore all security updates are community best efforts. Whereas Canonical and SUSE and Red Hat all have SLAs on the turnaround for high and critical vulnerabilities and in particular will make statements about mitigating all high and critical vulnerabilities in their platform for the lifetime of that platform. Whereas the community distributions can't do that. So it's interesting, you know, your point. It's, it, it, it does, you know, you do have to choose wisely. And I think we're getting well beyond like what is a Linux distribution at this point, but you know, what is a trustworthy Linux distribution? Maybe a debate for another day. But, um, I find all of this fascinating because, you know, Hayden's talked about WSL and I feel like in, uh, the last five years or so, gaming on Linux has been accelerated through the efforts of Valve 
And on desktop Linux, we're doing the inverse of this very thing, which is what is Windows? Because we run all of these games on Wine, which is Windows with the absence of the NT kernel. And there's a runtime there, right? A Proton runtime? Yeah. Proton or Wine, you know, however you want to pull that particular thing in. But again, it comes back to my point that the kernel is irrelevant. It's the the platform, the software ecosystem that you're choosing rather than the kernel that actually powers it. And in all cases, these kernels are becoming increasingly irrelevant. Yeah, you're not actually choosing an operating system. You're choosing a platform and then actually running multiple operating systems, applications from multiple platforms on top of it with various layers of abstraction, emulation, virtualization. And that goes back to my point where what this is all becoming is hypervisor. You brought up the PlayStation and its BSD underpinnings. The Xbox is at its core NT, but is powered by Hyper-V. The ability to pause and switch between games is powered by Hyper-V images. That game is running in a virtualization, and when you pause it and switch to another game and start playing again, not to pitch Xbox here, but uh, it's virtualization, so it's abstraction. And then just like desktop Linux gaming, it's just another layer of abstraction. Yeah, and without giving away all of Microsoft's secrets, I was stunned to learn, and you can you can fill in the gaps here, just how pervasive the different flavors of Hyper-V are across the Windows ecosystem. It's everywhere and responsible for everything. Windows Sandbox, WSL, support for Windows containers, gaming on Xbox. Uh, I know this isn't Windows downtime. We've talked about it quite a bit. (laughs) But um, what is relevant is to see what the other platforms are doing. So we talk about what Mac OS is doing. We talk about what Windows is doing, what happens on Chrome OS, because Linux doesn't exist in a vacuum. And the ideas around Linux both influence other operating systems, and Linux is influenced itself by other operating systems. And I think this is an entire paradigm shift across computing towards containerization, runtime, and abstraction. So I'm excited for it. Well, it's been great talking to you all. Thank you very much, Hayden, for joining us for the first time and Carl for returning. My pleasure. If you, dear listener, disagree with what we've all been saying, particularly Martin, who's wrong about everything here, then you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. I'll try and choose a non-controversial topic for the next discussion. Good. All right, well, until next time then, see you all later.